Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today was born in Iowa, where he completed elementary school before his family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he lived until he completed his degree in engineering from Arizona State University. A fascinating fact to me, because engineering and dancing don't seem to go hand in hand, (laughs) but in college, he was a member of a performing Israeli dance team. After college, he moved to San Diego, California, where he worked as a software engineer and raised a family. Now retired, he volunteers with the local police department to visit shut-ins, leads a Bible study fellowship, and writes fiction. He's a lifelong learner, like most of our authors over 50, because he was in his 40s when he learned to play the guitar, and in his 50s when he became a private pilot. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Randy Minkler. Thank you very much. I guess I'm in an exclusive club now. You are. (laughs) The first question we always ask on Authors Over 50 is what took you so long to write your first book? Wow, that could be a long answer. Um, It has a lot to do with uh, just uh, my own life experiences. Um, From the age of about 16 until the collapse of my second marriage, I was a lapsed Christian. That was almost a 20-year span. And the uh, closeness to God that I felt as a child had been hidden away despite brief renewal periods. My faith during that time was uh, the seed sown among weeds, I mean. And it was finally the failure of that second marriage when I was alone, separated from my children and depressed that... uh, uh, my dormant faith reawakened, and I got the seed for this uh, particular book. Um, I uh, reconnected with church, and uh, it was during this time that I, like I said, I got the a dream that gave me the seed. So, in the first couple years, I wrote some of it down. In fact, I told parts of the dream to my children and my nine-year-old son at the time even drew a picture of one of the scenes from the book. Uh, but as you can imagine, life intervened and things got very busy and uh, raising a family. I uh, was very fortunate to marry Barbara, my third wife, who was a loving, patient, woman who full of faith and uh, we've been married for 34 years so uh, uh, it's that kind of support that I needed to help go through this but uh, like I said uh, 
with Barbara. She had a daughter. So we all of a sudden had a uh, three children in the family and it was just too busy <laughs> to be able to get back to the book. That doesn't mean it was gone. I, it was kind of in the back of my mind a lot. Um, when I first started this like 36 years ago, there was no, uh, there's just the beginning of personal computers and uh, a word formatting software, not word processing software like Microsoft Word. And so even then I had to write my own uh, word formatter to produce the document in a uh, form I could save on the computer and and read in a reasonable way. There were text editors, but they were so primitive, it wasn't worth using. Um, fortunately, since it took me so long to write this book, uh, computers and uh, software have evolved quite a bit. And so finally, when I retired about uh, six years ago, um, I was able to indulge my passion. I mean, there I had dabbled in it here and there. I would add little pieces as I thought of it, but I didn't really bring it to a final product until about six years ago. And uh, <laughs> up until about two years ago, I thought I'd finally finished it. And then I realized that publishers seem to want at least 70,000 words for a fiction book. They say between 70,000 and 110,000 words. And I looked at my book and said, I'm a bit short. Absolutely. And only an engineer. We don't hear um, many writers saying that they had to create their own software to be able to, <laughs> to, be able to write their own book. So I, I uh, understand uh, you engineers are a pretty special group. I'd like to hear more about this Israeli dance team, Randy, because my, hus <laughs> my husband is also an engineer and has never danced a day in his life. Well, the nice thing about uh, being part of an Israeli dance group, it's a large group. Uh, the, all the moves are very defined, uh, which for most of us engineers who tend to be rather uh, strict, and compulsive or obsessive people, um, it's a pattern. It's almost like following a cookbook. So um, at the time, it was an interesting way to meet other young people and uh, get some activity. And uh, I didn't have a lot of time in my schedule to be able to do anything else like intramural sports. And actually, uh, because I uh, had um, contacts and stuff, I wasn't the type to actually be out doing a lot of intramural sports. Uh, so uh, I got connected with that. And uh, I mean, performing, we just go to some local groups that uh, were synagogues that were having a celebration and we would dance and it was fun. It sounds like a great time. I know engineering school doesn't leave you uh, much free time <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no. Well, share with us your publishing journey. Did you query agents or did you choose a less traditional path? Well, <clears throat> I wanted to go through agents. So uh, when I finally felt that I had the book in a reasonable presentation form, and by that, I mean, uh, I said I added pieces and then I 
uh, went through some beta readers and got some uh, feedback that I I tended to be a bit brief in places and needed to elaborate more so people would understand what was going on. Um, then I also hired some professional editors to go through. Uh, I admit it, uh, literary composition is not my strength. And um, I think I use commas in exactly the opposite way from the way they're supposed to be used. Uh, I tend to uh, write uh, the same way I talk. And so every place I would pause in my speech, I would put a comma. Uh, found out that's not great. Uh, so hired that. Uh, I tried sending out some inquiries. Uh, there's a whole bunch of online guidance on how to send queries to agents. And uh, I uh, did some searches and there's a particular book about literary agents and publishers uh, that helps you. Uh, this guy does a survey and they tell the agents tell what kind of uh, genres and storylines are looking for. So I was trying to target the searches, was not having any success. So I went through some additional publishing uh, or, or uh, professional editing, took a couple other classes that uh, helped clean up. And I thought I had a pretty good product. Um, unfortunately, after 66 inquiries, I never got any interest in the story. So I was wondering, what will I do? Will I just give up? Turns out, uh, I have an author friend who has written over a hundred books. Um, those were all nonfiction. And she either wrote them uh, with her as the author or as the ghost writer. And when she decided she wanted to write a piece of fiction, her agent wouldn't even represent her to do that. So she did some searching and she found uh, this hybrid publisher Torch Flame Publishing, and I sent an inquiry into them, and they expressed an interest. Now, let's face it, I do pay them to publish the book. Uh, I'm paying for a service, so I think it would have to be pretty awful for them to say that they didn't have an interest, but uh, hopefully that's not the way the book came out, and the only way I actually was able to get the book out at this time was to go through the hybrid publishing route. Now I've heard, and I cannot verify this, that first time authors have an extremely difficult time getting representation by an agent. So I'll just throw that out there too. <laughs> I think we're so fortunate these days to be able to have so many different paths to publishing because publishing is a very humbling industry. And I think for those of us who are over 50, um, some of us very far over 50, um, it allows us to, to have more control over our work and to choose those hybrid paths that we'd like to, to take. So I, I think that's excellent. The uh, perseverance is really needed in this uh, endeavor. And I sent out 66 inquiries only half of those inquiries did I even get an uh, standard, uh, your uh, thank you for submitting, uh, it's not of interest to us. Uh, so the other half didn't even bother to respond. Uh, 
I don't know how other people of our older generation might feel about that. I would personally think that's kind of unprofessional, but uh, I assume that uh, they just are overwhelmed with inquiries and um, that's just the way they have to operate sometimes. Um, so perseverance, perseverance is very much needed. Encouragers are needed. You need someone to help and uh, bolster you because, yeah, like you said, humbling, and it can uh, it can be a bit depressing <laughs> at times. <laughs> so that's very true, and I, I think everybody in this industry is overwhelmed. Um, the agents receive you know thousands of requests, but I, I just think they could figure out maybe they need you to write a software program for them, but. <laughs> They could at least send out form letters and say no thanks. <laughs> yeah, that seems like it would be. And the uh, the no thanks messages I got were almost identical in every sense. So someone's already doing that kind of thing. They just got to pull it up, put the new name in. So. Yeah, there's there's somebody writing the same book uh, they say everywhere so i don't think that's a good excuse i think we we can warm it up in different ways that make it unique yes and, and that would be uh, encouraging to people submitting what is your writing routine i think most of our authors seem to be morning people but that's unlike me so i'd like to hear about when the inspiration hits you well uh I also really am a morning person. And so I, if I can get my discipline up, and this is kind of amusing to me because as an engineer, I'm very disciplined. I uh, follow steps. But when it comes to writing, uh, I oh, kind of push that back a little. But when I write, most of the time, it is, is in the morning. Um, that said... If I get a particular thought, and that'll even be in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and say, oh, I should put that in there. If I don't write it down right away, the next morning when I wake up and say, you know, I had a thought last night, something important for this book, and I cannot remember what it is. But if I take a moment to even in the middle of the night, write it down, I know that can really interrupt your sleep patterns, but at least I'll have that off my uh, chest and I won't have to worry about that. And the next morning I can pick that up. I'll tell you many times I picked that up and says, that makes no sense, but it leads me to another idea that I end up working in. So hopefully it'll answer your question. <laughs> I know that, that you had a dream about this plot. So how did you take that dream and determine the plot for your first work? The dream was uh, just a little segment of it, and it was about a group of post-apocalyptic survivors and a fertility problem. And uh, as I started thinking about it, well, how could such a scenario arise? So the dream was just a very small part, but then I started filling in the gaps, basically. And... The other thing that kind of changed as my um, faith grew, it became more a story of faith. All of a sudden, these elements started coming in that I felt like I needed. Um, one of my central characters is a person known as Pastor Abraham Jones. 
he's the character I'd like to be. He's probably not the character I am in the book, but he's the character I'd like to be. And uh, he started coming into the story in the creation process late. He shows up early in the story now, but uh, he got added later. And like I said, uh, I got to a point about four or five years ago where I thought I had done wasn't long enough. And that's when I added in the uh, antagonist who all my beta readers loved. And I think, I guess people like the bad boys or something. But uh, he was a character that I uh, added and developed. And in a way, he's one of the richer characters in the story. So why don't you read us a section of the book to allow us to hear your style and tone? Okay. Um, I had three possible selections. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll start with the very beginning. Okay. That sets a little bit of it, if I may. Vina mm-hmm. rubbed her temples deep in thought as Abe and Kath escorted the Lizard King away from the mess kitchen and into the darkness to find him a place to spend the night. The Lizard King was a self-named scraggly loner who brought startling news to their camp. His appearance was not remarkable as Venus tribe, the Tierrans, regularly provided him with whatever the kitchen had prepared when he showed up. And he would offer information as a token payment. Most of the time, Vina and her team were already aware of the events related to the Lizard King. And frequently they would have to filter his ramblings to mine the nuggets of truth. Usually, Vina would dismiss the Lizard King's report as part of his predictable, deluded rantings. Soon after sunset, however, drums started pounding from the compound of the nearby ruthless gang known as the Clarins. The savage and mindless Clarins hadn't beaten on their drums in months, and now the timing of the booming seemed to give credence to the Lizard King's sighting. A boat approaching the shore. I don't think I've heard of anything like that in the last 11 years, she thought. After years of little change and relative safety from the Clarence, why now? Very nice. Thank you. You know, Randy, writers don't typically like to market ourselves. What have you done? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, you're not kidding there. (laughs) What What have you done to publicize this book? Um. Well, part of the uh, Torch Flame Publishing is uh, a publicity uh, person who uh, makes some contacts, and I thought they did a pretty good job with the artwork, uh, artwork for the cover and then some promotional slides. So um, I had that in my pocket. Again, my writer friend who suggested Torch Flame to me also mentioned a... uh, publicity firm that would go further. I mean, Torch Flame provide a lot of the materials, but they expected me to do the legwork. And as you suggested, we have a reluctance to put ourselves out there. So hiring a publicity firm, in this case, Books Forward is the one I used. They, uh, they look over my book, they try and target it, uh, audiences and they uh, help arrange things like this interview so i'm grateful for that again that's an additional paid service but 
this book has been such an itch in my life that I felt I needed to get out that I've gotten my gracious wife to agree <laughs> to spend some of our money to do this. Hopefully, I'll recoup it. Well, Randy's first book is called The Redeemed. Are you writing a second book? Will there be a series? Um, the answer is kind of conditional on that. Um, since I it did uh, require some expenditure of funds, and I'm getting up there in years now. I don't want to admit it, but I am. Um, I will probably... Uh, I have something in mind. But whether I actually produce it will depend on whether the sales of the redeemed is sufficient to start recouping some of these costs. And the basically two sequels, I'll let out a little of the story. Uh, I mentioned that there's an infertility problem that becomes solved and there are children, but these children are growing up and they need to find uh, mates of their own. Uh, the way this problem is solved, the uh, children are all basically blood relationships, so they need to uh, go out. And the second, the sequel would be about their journey to go out and find another tribe that they've heard also has children. Uh, and that will be pretty much the second sequel, that journey and the interactions and because um, uh, I'm sure just showing up on your hey uh, we're here uh, who wants to marry me <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, that that would be uh, awkward so it'll be some development there but uh, in the first story the um, the tribe is somewhat Pollyannish uh, that's a forced Pollyannish situation because being uh, exile from the tribe is effectively a death sentence there there's nothing out there um, they'd be on their loan uh, the only other tribes have been mainly uh, raiding parties and um, it's a pretty bleak scenario <laughs> uh, now with children this is 20 years later uh, they're not fighting that kind of thing and so they have a little more freedom uh and not so much a dependency on the tribe. So I think there will be some more internal conflicts showing up. The second sequel after that will be lots of conflicts. I'm afraid that's the story of human nature. Um, uh, I had a um, Baptist minister friend who said, if you get four Baptists together, you have two different congregations. So it's just a, uh, part of our human nature. You um, have a very interesting premise. Do you um, have time to read? Do you have any reading or any books that you'd like to suggest to our audience? Uh, I haven't had a lot of time reading lately, but there's have been a few things I've been reading. Uh, most of it has been light. Uh, I have been reading something called uh, The Fisherman. But it's basically a fictionalized story of um, uh, Simon Peter's uh, encounter with Jesus and, uh, and just how he grew and through his faith. Uh, that's Larry Huntsberger. And I, I've read um, 
kind of a light historical fiction called The Seer, S-E-E-R, by Eva Shaw. Um, when I read, I tend to like to read uh, some science fiction, some historical fiction kind of things, uh, and espionage or detective stories. So if I was to list authors I like to read, it, it would include, uh, you know, Ken Follett, Daniel Silva, Michael Conley, uh, and when they were alive, uh, Michael Crichton and Tom Clancy. I like both of their books quite a bit. So. Well, our authors are very unique in a lot of different ways. What advice for authors over 50 would you have? Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's actually quite a bit I would advise. Um, you know, it used to be people write longhand or use uh, typewriters. Gosh, do you remember carbon paper? Oh, uh, but uh, with computers, it makes it so much easier, first off, to properly store it. And eventually, almost every place that I talk to, you submit electronically. So you, you want an electronic copy. So if you're not comfortable with computers and software, I would suggest you take some uh, like junior college classes to become comfortable. Um, my wife, extremely smart person, uh, primary school teacher for years, uh, master's in education, enough credits to get a PhD. She originally felt uncomfortable with computers. She's now quite adept at it. So that would be the first thing. Uh, <laughs> and if you start saving or start writing on a computer, I tell you, save your work. You never know when your disk is going to go bad or something. So uh, it's not expensive to buy a uh, offline disk that you can run a backup to. And that'll just save you so much heartache. I would recommend some grammar software. Uh, there's several out there. For me, the one that worked out well was Grammarly. It integrates well with Microsoft Word. And uh, there's a free version, which is pretty good. Uh, but there's a paid subscription version, which for me was even better. I began to realize that I speak in passive sentences a lot. And boy, it would pop that out in my writing. Uh, Last thing, again, with this uh, electronic world that we're in, you need to develop what I would call a uh, professional persona on uh, social media. And uh, again, Julia, you, we say that we writers are frequently reluctant to put ourselves out there. This is a difficult way for me, but there's a whole an audience that this is the way they receive. So I have a uh, professional Facebook account. Uh, certainly uh, Torch Flame uh, Publishing has put up a uh, electronic uh, version of my uh, profile and everything for people to see. So if you like Twitter or some of those other things, I guess you go that way too. Um, I'm not quite comfortable with that yet, but... That's uh, the way of the world. Well, Randy, this has been a great conversation today. I'm so thrilled to know that engineers can have a creative side. 
I'm going to have to talk to my husband about this. Maybe he wants to start writing. <laughs> well, I know we say that, but it's kind of funny. Uh, uh, someone once said to me, you know, engineers, we are, are creative. We're always creating something. It's just that we go through a methodical process to do it. Uh, but he also mentioned that most engineers he knew also play musical instruments. So there's a part of us that uh, in that, I don't know, I guess we like to make generalizations about all different categories and uh, occupations. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We're delighted that you are one of our authors over 50. Thank you very much for the opportunity. God bless you.